before we get started, let me um, second uh, something that, uh, or say amen to something that Josh prayed. We have, over these number of weeks, uh, these sabbatical weeks, been fed really well. In fact, the church has been served really well by, by the staff and, and leadership, and um, as much as we miss Tom and Carol, and we look forward to them coming back in just a few weeks, uh, one of the sabbatical lessons for all of us is that this is the Lord's church, and he's equipped it and gifted it and cared for it, and even over these weeks, um, we've enjoyed that, and so I would agree with Josh on that. Um, now, um, let me say, um, you, you may know this, but people, at least in America anyway, uh, people have long had a fascination with zombies. Did, did you know that, Frank? People have long had a fascination, or Daniel, could be anybody, I just saw the red coat. Um, people have long um, found the living dead to be uh, fascinating. Uh, and like most things in our culture that are interesting, uh, Hollywood has chronicled that for us um, in lots of cinematic excellence through the years. Um, it, it turns out that um, the living dead or the walking dead are not just something that the millennial generation discovered and found interesting, but it goes way back. And so I, I just with a quick Google search, I put together a little list of, of excellence in theater. Uh, thought I would read, and, and just maybe you can see how many of these you remember. Uh, it did begin as far back as the 30s with the classic white zombie. Um, I guess there were other color zombies, but, you know, it was, you know, how the culture was back then. It was a white zombie. Um, in the 40s, um, I walked with a zombie. Um, in the 50s, you may remember teenage zombies, uh, maybe the kids of the white zombie. They were probably white teenagers. Um, Night of the Living Dead was uh, in the 60s. You may remember that one. Uh, Return of the Zombies in the 70s. They, maybe they were returning from the 50s. Um, Return of the Living Dead in the 80s, maybe the ones from the 60s. Um, in the 90s, you may not remember one called Dead Alive. Dead Alive was directed by Peter Jackson, who went a step up in his career and directed the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit franchises. Um, he apparently wasn't always great. Um, in 2009, in the 2000s, there was Zombieland, uh, which is only remembered by the four or five fans of Woody Harrelson uh, that are out there. And finally, in 2000 and now, there's The Walking Dead, uh, which, based on how many commercials they run on cable, I wouldn't know, but people tell me they run a lot of commercials on cable. Uh, apparently, it's a big deal. Um, now, today, we're going to look at the fifth of the seven churches addressed in the book of Revelation in these first few chapters, uh, where a church appeared to be alive, but they were judged as being dead. And we'll unpack what that means. But they were, uh, sort of in the, in the ecclesiological sense, they were uh, judged by some to be zombies, and in fact, the judge himself said uh, they appeared dead to him. Now, as we look at the church in Sardis, this fifth church, uh, we don't see <clears throat> a lot of the troubling issues that we saw uh, with the, the last four that we've heard about. Uh, to borrow some language from Kevin DeYoung, we don't see uh, orthodoxy, but without uh, love, like in Ephesus. Uh, we don't see <clears throat> vibrant faith but with fearfulness like in Smyrna. We don't see a missional people, but with misguided teaching like in Pergamon. Uh, and we don't see 
loving believers who were overly tolerant of immorality, like we learned about last week in Thyatira. Uh, we don't see any of those issues. That's, a, I guess, a good thing. <coughs> we also don't see them struggling with the difficulties uh, that those churches dealt with. Um, we don't read uh, that they were under attack by false apostles or by the Nicolaitans. Uh, we don't understand any of them were about to be thrown in jail for their faithfulness. Um, we don't learn of any uh, poverty issues or any tribulation issues like that. Uh, as it turns out, they, they don't have any of those issues in Sardis. Just, just 30 miles down the road from Theotira, they had none of those problems. Um, as it turns out, um, those are the problems of faithful churches in that time. Um, not every church everywhere has that sort of tribulation. But in that time, in that era, uh, if you didn't compromise with uh, the community, if you didn't sort of go along and get along, um, you had difficulty back then. Uh, we were reminded last week that even being on the uh, Chamber of Commerce back then, or as I like to say now, the Chambers of Commerce, which is how it was pronounced last week, which is really cool, Edgar. Um, my, I've been saying that all week, and my family looks at me like, why are you saying that? Um, uh, they, they didn't have those problems in Sardis because it would seem that in, in just sort of absolute compromise, they got along fine on the Chamber of Commerce. They, they were able apparently to com sort of compartmentalize their faith and have Jesus here, but uh, if it had something to do with Artemis or some kind of pagan deity, or pro yeah, we're okay with that. They got along fine. And so they didn't have those troubles uh, that those other churches had. Uh, as it turns out, they had a lot bigger trouble. They had a whole lot bigger problem than that. So John is again uh, directed to write to these, uh, this church, in this case Sardis, uh, from the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, none of the speakers over these past several weeks have really taken on who, who the angel is, um, the angel of the church. Um, nobody's taken that on directly, whether that's an actual angel um, is it a pastor or elder, some reference to leadership? Uh, the fact is we don't really know um, absolutely who that reference is to. Um, we could take some shots at it, but we'd likely um, not be helpful. I would submit that if you're super interested in who the angel was, you ask at the blessed return. And I've already mentioned Tom and Carol will be back in a couple weeks. You could ask them. <laughs> um, Tom or Carol uh, would probably be able to answer that. Um, and if they don't know, you could add, ask it the blessed return, um, though I doubt that'll be on our mind at that point. Um, the seven spirits of God um, is a little more straightforward to us. Uh, the one who's speaking, of course, through his writer is John, and he has the very fullness, the seven, the, the full completeness of the spirit, uh, which we see unpacked a little bit in Isaiah 11, um, a, a couple verses that we may only read around Christmas time, but you may remember uh, Isaiah said that there'll come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, uh, which is a lot of church talk if you're visiting today. Uh, his lineage, uh, from his lineage is going to come this Messiah and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and spirit of might, uh, spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. This is the spirit, the full spirit of God that rests on the one who makes this assessment of Sardis. On, on, this is Jesus himself. And so uh, Jesus, um, with the full spirit of God, um, says, I, I, I've observed 
uh, you Sardis, and I, I want to call out some things. And I would sort of call them out today along three points, um, specifically, and this forms a bit of an outline, uh, his assessment of them, um, his prescription to them, and his promises for them. Now, I would note that previous weeks we've heard uh, folks use all C's or all P's or something like that in their sermon. You will note, because you're paying attention, that I gave you an A, a P, and a P, which is an app, which speaks to how contemporary I am um, that, that you would get an app from me. Um, anyway, so let's begin with his assessment of Sardis, uh, which is pretty straightforward. He says, I know your works. Now, it'd be one thing for me or you to say, hey, Sardis, we know about you. Uh, it's another thing for Christ, who knows everything, to say, I know your works. It really would put to end any sort of response. Well, but you don't know. No, I know your works. Let's, let's just settle that. I, Jesus, full of the Spirit, I know your works. And, and he is speaking, again, to this, this, this local church, um, Sardis. It, it was, by the way, an actual church. Um, does it represent uh, types of churches? I mean, are there churches today that would have a lot in common with Sardis? Absolutely. But this is a real local church. We could get in the DeLorean, and we could go back in time, and we could meet with these people, these real people. Um, I, I say that because the... Jesus speaks to his people, God speaks to his people in the context of the local body. Uh, this notion that um, I don't really want to engage in a local church or I maybe just show up at the holidays or something like that. Uh, I'll get mine, I'll, I'll get a little bit from TV and I'll get a little bit from a few books and I'll get a little bit from a good Christian radio station, that sort of thing. Um, that is foreign to the New Testament. God addresses his people, God moves through his people, he protects and feeds and equips his people, he loves his people in the context of a local church. And so it's fitting that all these uh, letters to the body are written to local churches. And he says, um, I know you, and, and, and I'll give you, you have a reputation for being alive. Now, I don't know exactly what was in the reputation. Uh, they apparently, either then or in previous time, uh, had been a successful church. We don't know if they were measured successful because of the size of their membership or the, the folks who were in that membership. Um, I imagine they had programs and were involved in the community. I imagine they did good things. They probably had great traditions, things that in their, in their sort of history they were proud of, they talked about often, they held dear to their heart, they had great memories. They might have had great resources, maybe even great facilities, maybe a, a great daycare, something like that. Um, they were, um, as measured by folks around them at least, they were doing fine. And they seemed to be fairly comfortable with that. Uh, they, were, they were at rest. In fact, they had to be awakened from their slumber. They were so comfortable in their, what we would identify as their compromise, that they were just sort of chilling. Uh, they, had, they didn't have the struggles, apparently, that a lot of those other folks did where they said, how am I going to deal with this thing at work where if I, if I do right, um, there's going to be a price for that? And, and when our family gets together, when a lot of folks don't love Jesus and they start talking about religious alternatives, uh, if, I, if, if I don't go along, it's going to be so uncomfortable. 
Um, they had figured out a way to be comfortable, and we know it as the word compromise. And so Jesus says, I know your works, I know you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. That, that's, that's heavy. Now, um, I would submit to you, and we'll talk about what that meant, but um, I, I sort of uh, go with G.K. Bill on this, that, that that's hyperbole. They were not... They were not dead. Obviously, they weren't dead physically. They were getting the communication. They were, they were going to read this thing. But the, the debate, of course, could be, are these people even Christians? And, and I, would, I would hold that they, they, many of them were Christians, but were so compromised as to be lethargic and, and to look at them. They just didn't look like Christians. They didn't act like Christians, not the way God had called them to be. Um, that, that seems to be... Um, we, we, we sort of get the compromise thing confirmed by the fact that they weren't under any sort of attack or any under, under any persecution. So were, were, they, were they Christians? I would say heavily yes, because of, there's a life that's called to be rekindled, and we'll, we'll get into that. But they were not a whole lot of good. It, it's that old phrase, so worldly-minded and not very heavenly good. They... They, they seem to be fairly compromised. Now, there are some that would say, uh, some that, that we probably all would, would hold in high regard, some uh, teachers of the Bible, that no, these are just lost people. These are absolutely lost people. You know, this is a dead, like in Ephesians 2 or Colossians 2, where it said you were dead in sin and then you were made alive by God. But again, the, the, the weight of the, the letter to Sardis seems to speak heavily to there's something there to be rekindled. There's something there to be strengthened. And so I would submit that a lot of them were believers. They just didn't look like it. They didn't act like it. And then, of course, there were some that simply weren't believers. We, we know that, you know, Matthew 13, we're taught that in, in the body of the church, in the local church, in the, in the wheat that is the local church, there are tares. There are always going to be tares. Folks that look like maybe maybe active in church, maybe, maybe leaders in church. There are some who have never been converted. They've never really repented. And so uh, is that present in Sardis? I, I imagine it was. I'm pretty sure it was. Is that present here? I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, that's, that seems to be a plague of church, that you can join and get active and, and take a bath on Saturday night and put on good clothes, and you can come, and if you know all the right words, you look just like all the Christians. It's, a, it's really a, a dangerous thing. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Now, I don't want to say that Sardis was not, um, at some point, a, a really good church. So it's, it's made up of, obviously, um, some folks who don't act like Christians at all. But it might have been, in its earlier days, a really strong church. Sardis, in fact, itself used to be a great town. If you read much about Sardis, uh, you, you go back four, five, six hundred years, and Sardis was... Uh, wealthy and affluent. It was sort of a place to be, um, home to uh, famous people. And we don't talk about Croesus and people like that today, but those were big, wealthy names back then. We might remember the name Thales. The, I think he may be the first Greek philosopher, Josh. I'd look to you for that. He's some smart guy. They, they have a school right down the road named after him. He, um, he spent time in Sardis. Um, and it is fabled, that pun is intended, that Aesop lived in Sardis for a season. It's a big place. This was a happening place. Um, it, was, it was kind of um, famous for some stuff. Um, 
it was, uh, by the way, high up on an acropolis and guarded on really three sides by these really steep cliffs and considered fairly impenetrable by its enemies. Of course, until they penetrated it and whooped them. But it, it, was, it was considered this really powerful, special position. They minted coins. Um, they did lots of neat stuff. They, they were famous not only for being up on that Acropolis, but they were also famous for the Necropolis, which is a, a word we don't use. Uh, back home, we call that a cemetery. Um, apparently, their cemetery was such a big deal that you could see the mounds some seven miles away. That's something to be known for. We got the biggest cemetery around. Um, kind of sad. Um, they were known for temples, you know, temples to pagan deities. I mean, uh, Sardis was something um, in its day. And, and I don't doubt that the church of Sardis was something in its day. And that, we'll come back to that thought because Christ's covenant is something today. But anyway, we'll, we'll come back to that. So the Lord has assessed them, and now he gives them a prescription. His assessment is, look, I know you, and because I, who, I am who I am, don't challenge my knowledge, I know you, and I know you have a reputation for life, but tell me you're dead. And then he says, um, let me tell you what I want you to do, uh, having recognized that. Uh, at first he says, and this sort of the big, the big term there, I want you to wake up. I want you to wake up. Um, not just, you know, the, the non-Christians there that needed to be awakened to salvation, but you know, there's a body of people there that, that, here's what's interesting about Sardis. It's not like Sardis was the only place that had uh, backslidden, <clears throat> compromised believers and, and unbelievers. They weren't the ch first church to be like that. What church doesn't have some of that? But they had reached a tipping point where they were now the majority group. Uh, we found out later there were a few people there that hadn't soiled their robes that were faithful, but they were the minority. Sardis was known not as good church, but with some uncommitted, maybe even some lost people. It's a church known for, by this judge, by Christ, it's known for the, the deadness. And the exception, of course, is the life. And so he, he assesses them as such, and then he gives them a prescription that says, wake up. Um, he takes very seriously the bondage that they're in. Now, they are, uh, as I've said earlier, they're sort of comfortable and asleep. Uh, Jonathan Edwards understood uh, a little bit of that bondage, and he wrote about what, particularly what religious bondage does. You know, we're, we're in a world, we, we can all rattle off if we're church folk to things that bring, the sins that bring people into bondage. Uh, we'll talk about the sexual immorality and, and drinking and or excessive drinking, I forgot. Um, we have a list of things that are wrong, that are bad. Uh, I'm not sure we, we're, we, we always put on that list godless religion. It turns out godless religion might damn more people than, than godless non-religion. The, the fact is, I have, I have an uncle um, who died a few years ago who was a uh, what he called a sloppy drunk. Uh, most of his uh, young life. But at 50 years, I mean, he was in and out of every kind of uh, facility trying to dry him out. He was, he was bad off. But he knew he needed help. And at 50, he was wonderfully converted. I mean, like, never touched it again. 
and ended up, I mean, just talking about Jesus the last 35, 40 years of his life. I have other uncles who aren't drunks. They're deacons. They don't know that they need the gospel. They look so good. And, and I think Edwards had a sense of that when he says the devil deceives great multitudes about the state of their souls, making them think they're something when they're nothing, and so eternally undoes them. And not only so, but establishes many in a strong confidence of their imminent holiness who are in God's sight some of the vilest hypocrites. Empty religion is, is a horrible thing. Uh, and and even, even true Christians who walk in compromise, that's a that's a terrible thing. We'll talk a little bit more about that. So he says, wake up. Are you listening? Would you wake up and strengthen what remains? And again, this does sound a lot like a call to believers. Um, I don't think he would say to lost people, strengthen what remains. So there is life in these folk. And he says to rekindle it. Um, he goes on to say, remember the gospel that you heard. Remember the gospel Keep it. I mean, these are people that um, you, you don't know. I, I can't, I don't know when they became this particular group of people. I'm talking about the true unbelievers, but these believers who were so lethargically not very Christian in their lives. I, I don't know how that happened if they never got discipled when they came to Christ or, or they had been, they had had robust faith, but but the promotion put them in a different group of people and there were different expectations with that. And we wanted to keep that and so we sort of went along to get along and then the next promotion moved us a little further away or the social group that we ran with or the group that our kids ran with that we somehow as parents thought we ought to run with their parents and, and somehow we moved away and moved away and, and one day we are far away from the very gospel that's saved. And they're told, wake up, strengthen what remains, remember the gospel and keep it. And then what's that look like in action? It, it means to repent. And in the case of a lot of these folks, these are Christians being called to repentance. Um, it's not just the lost that, that are called by God to repentance. A lot of Christians are being called to repentance. We'll come back to that. Now, we've seen an assessment We've seen a prescription very briefly. Uh, he moves on then to certain promises, promises that, are, that are intended to encourage them toward action. And the promises cut both ways. There is a promise if they don't repent, and there are promises, plural, if they do. If they do follow him faithfully. Starting with Jesus' promise that if they don't wake up and repent, he's going to come to them in judgment. The reference made to like a thief in the night uh, that probably uh, would have meant more to them than to us. I don't think many of us go to bed at night wondering, is somebody going to come in and, 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 and attack us in the middle of the night? But they would have remembered that the Persians, the, the story goes that uh, Sardis was so confident in their, in their sort of uh, fortress and in, in, the, in the security of the cliffs and all that, that they didn't really d take guarding, they didn't behave carefully as soldiers. And so the story goes that one night or one evening, um, a, a sardin soldier dropped his helmet and it went down the cliff a ways. And he scurried down the path that he knew was there to get his helmet, and he scurried back up. The Persians who were watching this, they see 
him taking a path. And they go, we knew there was a way up. And of course, they engage the special forces of their, their battalion, and they climb up the same path, and, and ultimately the Sardans are compromised. They, since that day, they knew they were vulnerable, and so a thief in the night, an attack in the night, meant something to them. Now, this is not the same visiting of God. This is not the same thief in the night that, that the Bible talks of in the, in the ultimate return of Christ. This is not the uh, thief in the night. This is different. Um, that one is not a conditional if. You know, this one says, if you don't repent, I'll come like a thief in the night. The, the second coming of Christ is not conditioned on what we do or don't do. He is coming. That's a when he comes. Uh, this is the judgment on Sardis, on those people. We don't know fully what it looks like, how it played out. We read in history about the demise of the city and, and, and the difficulty of the church ultimately and all those things. But what we know is that if they don't repent, Christ promises judgment on them. And that's, uh, that's the promise if you don't repent. God will visit in judgment. There are, though, um, promises if you do turn, if you are faithful. Now, in the middle of those promises, he stops to say, by the way, oh, there are some there. Uh, he, he acknowledges that there are some there whose robes are unsoiled. There are some who are faithful. Uh, as it turns out, there's always a remnant. There has to be a remnant. We know that one day in heaven there will be people from every tribe and kin kindred and tongue. There will be people from every, every place, every time and place, that will worship God because he deserves the worship of every time and every place. And so there had to be some believers there. There were some believers there. And they are promised, um, before he gets into the rest of the promises, he promises that uh, they'll have a, they're considered sort of the folks with the white robe. They have purity before God, which is a, um, in contrast to the ones that he says you look dead, to say there are some with an unsoiled robe. That's a pretty serious commendation. Uh, you know, these, are, these folks didn't, uh, the passage at Sardis doesn't open up with a commendation like it did everybody else. You may remember that in the other passages, uh, this is something good Jesus could say about them, but I have this against you. This is the first one where he, he had nothing good to say about the majority of the folks. He moves straight to an indictment. But there are believers there. There are white robes there, which leads to the first of the three promises, uh, promises offered to those who would respond in faith, who would repent of their compromise. And, and to the degree that we are like them here today, these are promises for us. And I'll sum them up in a minute. But the first one is that um, those who are faithful get white robes. Uh, the ones who are already there that are faithful uh, they have unsoiled robes. They and any others who would repent and follow Christ faithfully, they get white robes. It's purity. Um, it's, it, it, that wouldn't have been lost on them in their economy. That You know, wool and, and textiles was, was um, something important in Sardis. And, and I think all these references to unsoiled robes and to, and, and to white linen, that sort of thing, it wouldn't have been lost on them. And it's a promise to them that if you are faithful, you will receive ultimately a white robe, a, a robe that's the last. I want to come back in a minute and talk about what that means. Um, the second promise that's given is your names will be secured in the book of life. Now, that's a reference they would have probably easily uh, sort of caught and, and, and appreciated. But when we hear uh, references to our names being in the book of life, we, we might move to some sort of 
um, intramural theological debate about is it a real book in heaven or that sort of thing. Um, they would have remembered that in most cities back then, um, there were registries of citizens. And if when you died, your name was taken out. Uh, and in fact, uh, you, your name could be taken out of the registry in a lot of towns if you for criminal activity. And, and it's written that some Christians had had their names removed from the registries for their faithfulness. And so to say to them, um, if you are faithful to me, come away from the compromise, walk faithfully before me, your name will be secured in the book of life. You will be absolutely, solidly safe eternally. Um, they would have appreciated that. Now, some, some have taken this, this reference to names being removed uh, and said, well, no, that's, a, that's not a, a comforting thing. That's a scary thing. That means that you can lose your salvation is the sort of church language. You can forfeit your salvation somehow. Um, that's, that's, that's really the opposite of what, what the passage is teaching. And you know here at Christ's Covenant, we would interpret the, the less clear by the more clear. There are lots of more clear passages that remind us that we're secure eternally. Uh, John 10, 28. No, nobody can pluck us from the Father's hand. And, and the idea would suggest that we can't pluck ourselves from the Father's hand. Or, or you go to Romans 8, and, and John Piper makes a lot of this. In Romans 8, um, Paul said that whom God foreknew, uh, he predestined. And who he predestined, he called. Who he called, he justified. And who he justified, he glorified. That is the whole body of salvation from foreknowledge all the way to glorification. There is no peace in that summary of salvation where some drop out. Those who are foreknown by God, those who are God's, make it all the way to glorification. That is a promise that we have. Um, you don't check out because you weren't holding on enough. You, you, we're not in the kingdom because we were holding on anyway. We're being held on too. So this notion that, well, I know somebody that um, they, they used to be a Christian, but then they denied the faith. They, isn't that what you call apostasy? No, that's what you call First um, John 2, uh, where in a very clear example, we're taught that folks that seemingly walk away from the faith, they were exposing the fact that they were not of the faith. The Bible's not teaching um, in this promise that our, our salvation is somehow tenuous and we better hope we hold on. It's the exact opposite. It's teaching that one of the promises that I have for you is that you will be secure. I will hold your hand. You will be in the book of life eternally because it's my salvation and not yours. The third promise, so the white robe of purity and the security of being firmly in the book of life. The third promise to me is, um, uh, I was thinking about it this week. In some ways, it's, it's, uh, I've not thought about it much. Maybe, maybe you have. But we remember from the book of Matthew, uh, yeah, from the Gospel of Matthew, where uh, religious people uh, said to Jesus in a defense of their worthiness to be in his kingdom, they said, Jesus, don't you know what we did? Let us give you our pedigree. We did all these amazing things. Our reputation, they're very sordid in this, our reputation is great. And you remember what Jesus said to those people with all of their religious stuff? He said, you need to leave. I don't even know you. Now, the promise in this uh, Revelation 3 passage is the exact opposite of that. As, as horrifying as it is to think that you would face God and he would say, I don't know you, this is the opposite. He says, I will confess you to my Father. 
I will say I know you to my father. I mean, it's funny. The um, old songs about heaven, um, a lot of them anyway, that I grew up with, uh, talk about heaven, you know, it's sort of a consumer version of heaven. It's about stuff I'm going to have there. It's about my house, and it's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. Um, there's a generation of music lovers that get that. Um, uh, you know, I came from a place where we thought it was a lot about barbecue. I mean, there's just so many ideas about heaven. It's sort of like whatever I dreamed, if I could have my best life now, I hate I said that. If I could have it all now, heaven is just sort of that, which means it's not about God, it's about me. It's very much a consumer idea. It's a race-centric idea. Um, that's not supported in the Bible, by any means. Uh, folks who see the throne of God don't go looking for their house. I, uh, Isaiah didn't do that. John and Patmos didn't do that. I don't suggest that we'll do that. But, but I will tell you something better than a mansion is to hear Christ say, Father, Frank's mine. She's mine. That, that would be such a huge deal. Because, you know, I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just candid enough with you to admit, I think when I get to heaven, I'll still be sort of shocked I'm there. For all of my great theology, I think I'll still be like, wow. And I, I think I'll, I might even be wondering, am, are they coming to tell me something bad? And then to think that Jesus would say, Father, raise mine. That's a promise. That's a promise that would make you want to repent from your compromising lifelessness that's a problem, promise that would, I would submit would make, make one you to repent from your lostness. It's definitely a promise for the believer that offers great encouragement. Um, so with that said, let's move to sort of a, a bit of application, uh, as we would often do here. Uh, let's, let's just assume for a second there are unbelievers here today. Uh, there are enough people here that I imagine there's a fair amount of them. Um, not because I'm a prophet, but because I'm a lover of statistics, and I sort of think that there's probably some here today. Uh, some, in fact, might even be members in very good standing. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think Christ's covenant is so great that we're beyond some of that. So, um, if you're an unbeliever here today, if you would admit that, not, it, 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 by the way, if the folks on your pew would never imagine that, they're on your row, we don't really have pews, um, that's why we're really not Southern Baptists, um, <laughs> if you are, um, if, if you would admit in the quiet of your own honesty that you're not a Christian or you're highly skeptical of your own salvation, again, the people around you may think you're great. The people in your, at work may think he's a religious dude. Um, the folks in your care group may think you're fine. Struggling a little bit. Some of them have been long struggles, but yeah, you know, that's just the Christian life. But if you know better, um, this passage and really the entirety of the Bible would call you to repent. Um, it would call you to repent. Now, the, the repentance that's sort of walked through heavily in this passage is to a second group of people, um, of people that are actually Christians that need to repent. But if you're an unbeliever here today, we don't want to miss the opportunity to call you to biblical faith. And biblical faith would not be adding Jesus to your otherwise wonderful life. Uh, it would not be adding religion to what may only be an earthbound existence. You need some of that existential stuff. No, adding Jesus would be what repenting means. Uh, you're on a path and you turn to the right path, which assumes that you've admitted that you're on the wrong path. That's why it gets real. 
biblical conversion gets real because it's admitting that you are absolutely wrong. So the notion that you could just add Jesus to your otherwise wonderful Republican, Democrat, whatever your experience is in North Raleigh, totally misses the gospel. The gospel requires much more of us. It requires us to admit that we are absolutely hopeless with all of the good stuff and all of our best efforts unless we turn and place absolute faith in Christ. So I would call you to that. And by the way, uh, may I say, the the evidences of that will not be, and and this is just me sort of um, maybe as an elder using the pulpit here to to make a point outside of the sermon, but um, the evidences of that genuine faith will not be limited to you wrote it in your Bible and you remember the day you prayed. Now, I don't want to offend anybody. If you wrote your day of conversion in your Bible and you remember that day, great. I wrote it in mine and I remember a day too. But I'm telling you, there will be a day when you'll either lose that Bible or you won't remember that day. Or there may be a day when you remember the day, but you don't, you'll begin to second-guess your motives on that day. Did I even mean it? And you'll need something a lot more substantial than something written in your old Scofield Bible. You'll need something real. And the good news is um, we're given something real. The New Testament says that there will actually be life for true conversion, whether that's in Galatians 5 that says if his spirit is in us, he'll begin to have fruit. He'll bear fruit. It may be slow and halting and frustratingly uh, incremental and, and sometimes hardly discernible. We need brothers to remind us, brothers and sisters, to even point it out sometimes. Another um, reason to be in a local body. But um, if we are truly born again, there will be life, fruit of the Spirit. Uh, James 2 talks about fruit of righteousness. It'll be there. Or we all know... Uh, 1 John 1 lays out a whole list of things. Um, People that are truly converted will begin to hate sin and and deny the world and love their brother and forgive their brother. That's real stuff. So what I'm calling you to, if you're you're um, an unbeliever here today, or really maybe you're just a massively uncommitted believer, I'm not calling you to a prayer that you write in your Bible. I'm calling you to a repentance that begins to bring change. Um change. And, and, and I shared this with Lisa yesterday. Uh, I'll share it with you. Um, if somebody asked me uh, if Daniel Harmon, who happens to be sitting in front of me, if he was alive, I wouldn't go to the county records where he was born and look for a birth certificate. I'd look at him, see if he was breathing, see if he's talking, see if he's moving. I'd look for signs of life. Surely, surely at the God of heaven has moved on us and if his spirit really indwells us, we've got more evidence for our assurance, more reason for assurance than something we remembered from 37 years ago. There's life. Daniel's alive. He's he's moving right now. I don't need to look up his birth certificate for that. I see it. And if you come to Christ, you'll see it too. Um, that, That second group of people that Maybe that large group of people here in Sardis, those who, um, they didn't have any difficulty like those other churches because they were getting along just fine with everybody outside the church. Um, They have a prescription that's pretty clear. Awaken, strengthen, remember, keep, and repent. Uh, It would begin by, (laughs) admit that you're in that boat. Awaken to the fact that, you know what? 
you may have come to Christ at some point in your life, but the writer of Hebrews said, you never got around to any of the meat. Milk's been just fine. Because the meat might suggest that I have to go against the grain at work or in my neighborhood or with my buddies that I play with, golf with on Saturdays or in my home or with my whatever. And I, compromise is just way more comfortable. To those folks, the writer says, Jesus says, you need to wake up. And I have to believe there are some folk here today who, who struggle with your Christian faith and wonder, why do I not see um, the growth and the fruitfulness? Well, for some, it's a lack of genuine faith. But for some, it's just a lack of growing and, and a compromise that needs to be repented of. And if you're in that first group or that second group, I would say, ask the Lord to show you your heart. And, and, and if it's helpful, uh, ask a, a member of this church or a leader in this church or whoever. We, we don't want to just like look good. We don't want to just have a good reputation in this church. We don't want to be Sardis part duh. You know what I mean? We, we, we want health here. Uh, we want believers who are growing. Not just believers, disciples who are growing. Now the third group there um, that was called out uh, was, uh, let me back up a second. Let me give you a, a word of encouragement from history. Uh, for those who do repent, um, history would tell us that the Bishop of Sardis in the second century, a guy who, uh, the guy who apparently wrote the first commentary on the book of Revelation, was a man known for his piety and his faithfulness. Second century, leader from Sardis, leading God's people, which a lot of folks um, infer from that that this message to this church was actually received and acted on because some years later, one of the men that was leading God's church was from Sardis. And so there was hope for Sardis. There's hope for you if you need to repent. Now, that, that last group, committed believers here, um, I just want to remind you that those promises are meant to encourage us believers who love him now even if you're struggling but you love him now you want to grow these promises are real for us this idea that we will have purity white robe you know that being holy is hard now do you not know that whether we admit it you know we can look so good on sunday and 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 carry around massive guilt guilt that may even turn to fear and doubt because we do struggle to be holy our our flesh fights against it, our mind, our affections fight against it, the culture fights against it. Being holy is really, really difficult. If you are faithful, it's really difficult. The promise is that there, there is a white robe. There is a time coming when you won't struggle anymore. To the faithful believer who walks with him in eternity, you will be holy, straight up holy, because it's his holiness that will have been given to you. Um, secondly, um, this, this notion that your name won't be written, uh, taken out of the book of, of life, that's a big deal. Um, I, look, if you're like me, sometimes you measure how much God loves you by how many quiet times you had in a week. Now, isn't that horrible theology? Isn't that, isn't that sad that an elder would, would admit that? But it is where a lot of us live. We sort of wonder if God loves us based on how well we're doing that given week. And, and this second promise would remind us we're secure in the book of life. You didn't get into book of life because you had nine quiet times last week. 
And I gave you credit for two on one day. That was impressive. You didn't get in because you had quiet times and you don't jump out. That's a promise that's encouraging to us not to not have quiet times, but to have them with joy. Not because if I don't have them, he won't love me. No, he loves you, so have them. Uh, And then thirdly, we will have an advocate before the Father. I I have to believe, back to the previous point, I I can just see myself in heaven. I know I'm going to be translated, so these sort of earthly thoughts I have, I think are going to be washed away. But with my earthly mindset, I go, I'm ready when when I see the Lord walk toward me. I'm making this up, of course. I'm going to say, it was all you, Christ. It was all you, which would be theologically accurate. But I'm pretty sure that I won't open my mouth. He will say, I love him. He's mine. That's a promise that doesn't call me to anything but faithfulness and to to worship and humility. So let let me sum up. This is really the summary Uh, with a word to the whole church, a word to CCC. These are letters to churches, and it's only fitting that there would be a word to all of us together. Um, All these letters, and this one to Sardis particularly, um, where we are sober to read that there could be so many uncommitted, compromising believers in a church, plus some lost ones and some faithful ones, that they would be characterized as dead by the Lord himself. That's that's a sobering thing, but here's the deal. we ought not think we're above going down that same path. Uh, reading about Sardis shouldn't lead us to go, well, man, glad we're not like that. It should, it should remind us of the great... You understand it was, it was Jesus himself who had the right to judge, who was the one telling them to wake up to avoid judgment. This is the kind of loving, merciful God that he is. Um, but to all of us here at Christ's Covenant... Uh, this this letter, these letters should move us to a humility and to a diligence. I, I would say that um, you may know Christ's covenant was birthed out of a church, another church some like 25, 26 years ago, that I bet you money was faithful for a long time to God's word until they weren't. How, how foolish, if not absolutely arrogant, would it be for us to think that just because things are going well here today, our theology's tight, our pastor and our staff are you know, just wonderful. How foolish would it be for us to think that if we're not diligent in our faithfulness, that we would be any different than Sardis? They weren't always Sardis. The, the, the fear I would have, you know, and, and, and the fear we... The healthy fear we might all ought to have is that by God's grace we avoid um, maybe I'll say that differently by God's grace let us avoid what would be the fear that the next generation of Christ's covenant or the one after that would be a lot like Sardis you follow me on that? so today the pulpit's strong today the leadership is, is faithful and the body responds well to the leadership on the whole um, you know, it's, it's this dance, right? A faithful preaching of the word, equipping and, and encouraging and disciplining. And the body responds well, not only in submission, but in, in holding the leadership accountable, examining the scriptures to see if it's true. That's healthy here today. We're thankful for that today. That is God's kindness here today. But we are not different in that if we cease to be faithful, 
we can very quickly go down another path. This was written to a church. It wasn't that old. This wasn't a 700-year-old church. This was written like, what, first century stuff. When was the church started? Like first century stuff. So with humility, as we, as we close in a moment of, of silent prayer, and then we'll be led, I think, by Levy in prayer, I would ask you to thank God for his grace that we are in this body today by his grace, but that we would ask him for a measure of humility and faithfulness that we would not go the sardine way. Let me have a moment of, of silent prayer.